welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So today joining us, we have Duncan McDonald and Pamela Barker. These guys are both paramedics based with the Special Operations Response Team out in the West. Um, and they're both involved with instructing various parts of courses, both for paramedics and for the SORT teams. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. No problem. So it's for a lot of the rural basics responders they won't necessarily have come across sort before what is it that you guys do and and how are you kind of structured yeah so we are mainly formed of three bases they are in the north the east and the west we also have a base in dundee which sort of helps cover that in between area and there's also some capabilities in Dumfries as well, which helps with the South. We're made up of six teams, and there's roughly about seven members to each team, and we aim to always have six of us on on a shift. And are you guys made up entirely of kind of standard road crews, or is this over and above your usual road crew allocations? We kind of look at the, the allocation to the teams would be everybody in the team run consistently of paramedics uh, within all sites. Everyone has came from the road, having done work in division and normally still working some overtime in division as well to keep their hand in. And the, the teams are then made up of a skills mix depending on the, the core skills we have within sort, be that water, difficult access and things as well. We come on to talk a bit more about them as we go. And I, I guess you've kind of hinted at a couple of things, but what sort of jobs do you get involved with? We get involved with quite a lot of jobs. We go to road traffic collisions, which I think makes up a high percentage of our turnout. We also go to fires or any sort of hazmat or CBRN kind of incident. We've got quite a lot of disciplines that we train in for situations that might not come across every day but we are always aiming to be prepared to attend if such a situation comes up and am i right in saying that they're often the bigger jobs that you guys end up getting tasked to yeah i think what we call is a pre-deployment allocation um that is made up through control and it lets you know if this requires a sort response um we're looking at as pamela said multi-car rtcs multi-patients anything my mass casualty consideration difficult access support the fire services when they go to five pumps and above kind of bigger jobs that go on as well as things that, as we said the difficult access jobs might just be one patient but it's kind of extrication kit and the team that come to that one to assist and help the divisional road crews with them so quite a varied role and a varied skill set What's your training pathway in order to join SOAR? Just recently, we have now got a whole week of our schedule dedicated just to SOAR training. 
And as Duncan said earlier, a lot of us are trained individually in certain disciplines. So, for example, some of us are swift water rescue trained, which means we're able to attend water incidents or we can help the fire rescue team and assist in those kind of jobs. We have various amount of different instructors, sort of our all-terrain vehicle instructors that are on some of our teams and they're the ones who train us on the Wolverine that we have for those difficult access jobs where we maybe need us off-road capability so we can bring that. So basically we've got three shifts, six weeks that we just dedicate to training and that's usually organised by a training department which myself and Duncan help out with. We also try and aim to do on-shift training as well and we try and keep on top of it throughout our whole shifts. I think from the, the delivery from the... When you come into SORT, your initial training programme into it would be you do kind of fitness-based trial when you come for your interview as well. So that basically gives you a chance to see are you able to work in a confined space environment, work off a height and work carrying some weight on your back, which is normally considered to be the SCBA weight that we carry on their back. So it gives you an idea of what the fitness elements might be required. Then when you come to the interview phase yourself, you, you have a verbal interview with a panel, but you're also given a command task on that as well to give you a feeling of what it's like to be in command at a scene and what your capabilities are and should be expected. Once you're successful at interview and you're invited onto the teams, your basic training normally takes about six weeks, and that will include things like incident response and command, logist course, and induction phase, which includes these things. Looking at basic CBRN and hazmat, wearing the PPE required to work in these areas, gaining competence and safety in them, self-contained breathing apparatus for, again, the gold standard of CBRN, and in the event we have to work with the fire service, working along with the marauding terrorist attacks, so it's the kind of tactical medic stuff in the event we have a terrorist attack on our shores or in Glasgow or sort of Scotland as a whole. And then this culminates in what they call two weeks of IR training, which is instant response. So you take all the training you've been given and it works normally in you would get lectures in the morning from subject matter experts in various fields. And in the afternoon, you normally run three type scenarios where you're putting all the skills that you have learned to the test and working in a team environment and using the command structures you're, you've been taught as well. As working in division to working in SORT is slightly different, whereas division, it might be you on a PRU yourself or you with your colleague in the ambulance. When you're in SORT, you're working as part of a team and it's trying to find out sometimes where you dovetail into that team and having to work in that team environment, sometimes a bit different for people. So that's where the kind of training pattern comes in from start to finish. And then as Pam said there, when you're on shift, we do our own shift training. And then every six weeks, we've got that weaker training where we train as a team to consolidate all our training and work together for the better, best delivery we can for the patients. It makes a really interesting challenge when you're constantly having to either come in kind of halfway through a job and augment another team or when you're working with lots of different agencies, lots of different ways of working. It must be quite fascinating from your guys' point of view seeing the juicier jobs. 
I think one of the more important aspects of SORT is working with the other agencies. I think a good part of our initial training in that seven weeks is learning about other people's capabilities, working with other agencies such as the police or the fire rescue and how to communicate with one another and how the three agencies should work together or how the ambulance should fit in in a major incident response. So it's quite different. Yeah, I think just to echo what Pamela said there, from original training where you get to the, have the injects from these um, agencies and then exercising with them and working with them, understanding the JSIP principles, the Joint Emergency Services Interoperability Principles, and how we all work together to reduce harm, save life. And this all happens all the time in the jobs we go to. And we seem to have a really good rapport with agencies such as EMRS, fire service, police, and the different facets of police and fire service as well, as well as working with Coast Guard and Inland Water Rescue as well. It's, it is really good and it's a really challenging but enjoyable part of the job as well. Um, and I think the team aspect and being able to communicate is very important to be a decent team member and so on. Yeah, that's a massive part of our command and control training. And certainly I found on jobs where I've kind of liaised with sort teams, it's a great attitude and a great suite of skills that you bring, not necessarily things that are different from the road crews, but often a different way of implementing things. I think a lot of the time it's just putting a structure to the job. If a road crew calls us out because they need our help, we're not going to arrive necessarily to take over or anything like that. Obviously, we're all paramedic trained our job might be just to look at the environment a wee bit of situational awareness perhaps and put a command structure in place to help an onward crew might not be necessary for us to have any patient contact as such but it might be necessary to communicate to control to a team leader to an AIC put a forward command structure in place just to, to again echo what you're saying there, Dave, as well, it was um, a couple of years ago the Beast for East came and ambulance couldn't get access to a patient. The ploy went off the road and the SOP team went out and again it's thinking outside the box and took what we normally deploy for swift water rescue technicians, taking the boat, inflated that and actually walked the boat into the patient's house, stabilised the patient, extricated them on the boat through the snow and then got them on the ambulance to the hospital. So it's just like you said, we don't do, we're not taking anything different there. We're just looking at the task at hand from a different angle and giving it a, a wee step back, maybe that global overview. And again, tapping into different people's strengths. We've got a team of six or seven here. So folk have got different strengths and have had different experiences. So it's taking them on board when you're putting your plan together. It's really helps us. And sometimes it's even just an extra pair of hands for extrication purposes. We're here for many, many different reasons. Even if it's things that we're not necessarily trained on, we can maybe turn up to a scene and just give a hand. Yeah, that having just pairs of competent bodies is really useful at big jobs. Yeah, and I think from what we've had is when we come into situations like that, we understand from, even from a trauma assessment perspective that when we're on different aspects of that trauma assessment, you may be needing kit, so that kit is handed over your shoulders. It's not something you need to be thinking about because somebody's already thought of that for you. So it takes that thought process off you and it kind of lets you keep the cognitive function you're looking for to deal with a job at hand. Having that extra pair of competent hands, as you said, who's known the procedures, knows what kit has to come, knows what medication has to come, and that's a concurrent activity thing which we work at quite a lot. 
I'm glad you've mentioned kit because you know I have in my mind you know four-wheel drive vehicles and all-terrain vehicles and that kind of thing. What toys have you got in your toy box to to bring to scenes? That's a question. We have quite a lot of kit, to be honest, for various purposes. We have, I would say, four or five large main vehicles full of kit that we can bring to a scene. We've got a mass casualty pod, which is just full of kit that we might need for a mass casualty event. So that might be things that any other paramedic might use, such as eye gels, but we have them in a vast amount. We've got things like stretchers, we've got tents, we have off-road capability, we've got different sort of evap mats and mibs and skids and all these sort of extrication devices. Contamination tents, uh, air heaters, blowers and that way for decon. We have mass casualty tents, we can put up pods as well again with air heaters. We're looking at the POMS, which is the Pouch Organised Medical Systems which uh, stolen slightly from the MET idea. And they're putting into perspective when they're using the, the CCP cell or CCS, casual mm-hmm. collection point or casual clean station. Things like bulk oxygen that we can use for multi-mask purposes if we've got a lot of patients to deal with. We've got provisions just allowed to deal with that. And again, on the extrication device, like Pam's saying, we've got the MIBs and the SCEDs, so it's the older inline body SCEDs are... And they can be lifted vertically as well as horizontally. So we think of taking folk out of submarines and things like that or hatches, they can go up vertically. They're very good on the ground as well for dragging purposes. Litter carriers, in the event we can't get the Wolverine to a patient, we can get them on a basket stretch on a litter carrier. It's a bit antiquated. You think again back to the World War One when you're on a, a set of trolley wheels, a rack system which runs you, walks you through but it works, so if it's not broke, don't fix it. We've got a water vehicle just specifically for our water job attendant, and that has life jackets, so we can actually work in that environment. We've got torches, we've got boats, blow-up skids as well, say if it was maybe a mud or ice-related incident. We've got thermal imaging cams, night vision capabilities as well, detection, identification and monitoring, so we're using things like we call all tier four systems, which will allow us to work in environments to let us know when it's a lower oxygen limit, higher explosive limit, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide as well, which gives us capability to work in these environments and things like our self-contained breathing apparatus and the other PPE equipment that we have within the vehicles. We've got our gas-tight suits as well. If we did come across a chemical incident and we would have to be completely protected, we've got our gas-tight suits and our like Duncan says, our PRPS suits, which enables us to deal with unknown chemicals. It's a pretty comprehensive suite. I think I should have probably have asked what you, what you guys don't have. <laughs> ah, but we've yeah. not even included the sort of marauding terrorist stuff we have as well. So we've got ballistic stuff as well within the vehicles. And we also carry a single cell decon within one of our primary vehicles that we can rock up the scene and get that set up for, again, single person decontamination for doing it on a, a one-to-one basis or a small basis as opposed to a mass casualty decontamination side of things. And then we're getting new equipment because our skill set's expanding. So I think we're going to be working at heights. We've got equipment still to come for the likes of that. And we're also trained in confined space. So that's another skill set that we're working on just now as well. 
so there's more to come. So I'm guessing that for a, let's say, a big roadside RTC, you're not going to be rocking up with all of this kit. So how does it work in terms of you guys being so activated? From a deployment point of view, that will come through. The call comes through to the spot phone, single point of contact phone, and it's normally the team leader or two IC has that phone, and they will allocate the vehicles to that specific job. Normally, if it was an RTC multi-casualty, you were looking at sending the car, your incident response command, your incident response primary. And with that, we'll be coming five to six paramedics and a lot of kit with them. And in these primary vehicles, we have decon certs, we have portable lights, can be used at night, which we use quite a lot, to be fair, um, setting up at scenes. They're fairly self-contained in how we can deploy to these incidents and roll out paramedic response to them, as well as all your standard response bags and clinical kit we'd expect to have, as well as a trauma kit available to us within these vehicles. Yeah. It might even be for environmental reasons. If there's a prolonged incident, you know, we can always put up shelter and lighting for people to work in a more safer environment. It's phenomenal to be able to bring significant aspects of a hospital, essentially, out to the road. Yeah, and I think this is, again, coming back to working with yourselves and basics, EMRS, other agencies where we can set up equipment for them to work in safely and dry as well and let them crack on with what they do, which is some of the things I've been able to see them do in jobs is amazing. Um, but it gives a safe and comfortable setup to work in, especially in these challenging situations. And we'll just crack on a bit further forward maybe within that job. Are there any types of jobs that you guys are not routinely tasked to at the moment? Anything that you back away from? No, to be fair. We've been used for everything just now. But that's you come to sort to get that different kind of job aspect. I think as a paramedic, no two jobs are the same despite what it says on the screen. You come to sort, there's definitely two jobs are the same despite what it says on the screen. And we were out to everything just now. And it's good to stay out, stay busy and get that patient contact that we all look for. I think you can preempt that sometimes in the winter or if there's bad weather, you can maybe preempt we might have more difficult access jobs that weekend or or week shifts that you're on, or conversely in the summer you might end up getting tasked a lot of water jobs in the summer because people like to go swimming in lakes and lochs and and do more dangerous things when the sun's hot. So you can kind of sometimes preempt it, and then sometimes it's just jobs you wouldn't really imagine or even be prepared to go to. So it sounds like it's a pretty rewarding mix of odds and sods and an interest from a clinical point of view, but also from a logistical yeah, point of view. Yeah, not to sound corny, but I really do enjoy the job and I'm very, very lucky and very proud to be within sort working with the folk I do because every day the jobs you go to, you get involved with various agencies and the folk you're working with on a daily basis. There's always are something new every day is a school day. So there's always a challenge and it's, it's really rewarding to actually get there and help someone. That be the patient, divisional road crews if they need a hand or just your teammates around about you. For most basic responders tend to be based in rural areas and you guys are obviously predominantly city-based. How do we go about looking for your help if we've got a bit of a spicy job that we want to hand yeah, with? So if you work rurally and you want some advice or you maybe want sort, what you can do is just phone us and ask. So you can always request contact through Control, and Control will let you know whether it's either radioing us or maybe giving you a number for our team leader phone. And we can always discuss the situation, maybe give some 
tips about what to look for and what you can do and maybe some advice or we can always start going to the job even if it's two or three hours away if it might be a protracted incident there is no harm in thinking right let's get sort moving if you think that we can bring something to the job because we can always be stood down once information comes through we're always accessible for advice or if there's a piece of kit that somebody might need we do cover the whole of southwest of scotland so maybe even further off i think from Stranraer to Oban so we really do cover a wide area and if it's maybe not practical or feasible to attend but somebody wants some advice you just ask control and they'll tell you a way to either talk to our team leader or a member of our team. And I know from speaking to the other teams in the east and the north, north especially, they tend to have more time at basics because of the rural aspects of their jobs. Always at the end of the phone, and like Pam said there, even if it's just advice, we've got TAC advisors on call as well who are very good, know their subject extremely well, and are happy to give out advice whenever required. But if anything, like I say, please call us, get us running. We're always happy to come out and help. And if there's anything we don't know, there's always an on-call sort manager. There's always people on call to help us out. And that might mean we phone advice so that we can give advice as such to the rural crews. There's definitely no harm in giving us a call and get us rolling if you think that you might need something that we have. It's amazing how kind of reassuring it is, even just talking through a job with a fresh pair of ears it just lends a bit of perspective on what you're doing and you, sometimes you miss something really obvious and it takes somebody from the outside looking in and going oh what you want yeah, is one of these yeah exactly so I think if a crew was to phone up and say we've got this situation we're not quite sure how to get a patient out of the position they're in or it might be they're trapped somewhere we might be able to for some advice or say oh we've actually got a piece of equipment like that if it's not time critical we might be able to go and help out or if it is we can can just give some command and control advice and be that attacked by the role to somebody who's actually on scene. I think as well from that what you were saying the other day if you're in that job and you start to maybe get that kind of tunnel vision sometimes you can get depending on what the job is and your stress factors at the time having that weaken a person in the back of a globe over you you know can also help. Recently read the book Dr. Stevie Hearn's book on peak performance and he talks about cognitive functions and things like that and having that training to put that person into perspective. It's quite good to have that from our team perspective, somebody who sits back and has that kind of global overview of an incident which helps you not to become so task focused or maybe not miss the wee things that we maybe could miss if that wasn't in place. I do think that working in the team environment we've got always somebody's taking that wee step back to give you that, that aspect to the jobs very beneficial. It's just that situational awareness. Yeah, it's having the manpower to be able to have somebody who's just completely eyes out rather than you as a clinician being entirely focused yeah, on, and I think on your patient. Having the, the structure of the team, with the team leader on the two IC, they also like being hands-on clinical-wise and anybody in the team's more than happy to step up and take charge of the team at any one time. And the team's quite good in the way that somebody falls into that role you don't take the hump about it. It's just somebody's giving you that backup, that overview that we kind of crave, you know, in those situations. Fantastic. That's a really useful rundown of what you guys do and some of the quirks of the job over and above a normal road crew. Do you guys get other sort of outside agencies involved with your training? Is there, for instance, scope to get basics folks in? If yeah, you're doing I think a, a there training would be. Um, again, once we get COVID out of the way and we start getting the, open up the training programme to everyone again, 
we'll be working with a lot of agencies, I would hope. Um, and I think from a perspective on that, it would be really good for RTC Extracations in a rural environment. It would be very good. Any rural jobs that we get would be beneficial there. Mountain Rescue. Yeah. Mountain Rescue would be really good. We meet all sort of agencies in the job so really we should be training together as much as possible so that we know what to expect from each other and help out and get a better situational awareness and provide that Jessup role that Duncan was talking about and which is basically the guidelines and how agencies should work together in order to make a scene more effective whether it's we all know where to co-locate and we all know what to discuss it might be that we can train fire and rescue. It might want to know what we're looking for a certain job. We might want to know, well, what can we use the likes of Mountain Rescue or the police or, or other agencies? That would help us as well because there might be things that we are missing in a job because a party's not there. Absolutely. And it's all these agencies have got a specialist skill set to bring to the party and it's just it's working out. Yeah, I mean, we currently work everybody. quite closely with police on quite a few things, especially from a finance perspective and a support perspective, and working with the fire service as well. It's just the more we work together, the better you know the relationships become, and the easier jobs become on the back of that one. That there's an understanding and a trust between the services that work together and the teams that work together. And the more we do this, the better we get at it. I just I can't stress that more. The more we can train, you know, the better we can do our job. Yeah, I think from previous experience, the jobs that we go to where different agencies have worked well together have definitely been the better jobs that we go to. It's better for the patient. It's better for everyone involved. If everyone knows what they're doing and everyone's communicating with each other, then we can definitely come up with the best plan possible for the patient or patients involved. Absolutely. And that, at the end of the day, is why we're all doing the job. But Sometimes it gets, yeah. it gets lost yeah. in the that's chaos. That command structure and that Sunday stepping up, stepping back to have that role and try and bring us back together and bring us back into focus of what we're here for, which is the patient, is key. Listen, we've been getting all of our all the guys presenting to give us three top tips. What would your suggestions be for basic responders sort of interfacing with sort or or so complex jobs? I think jobs? Um, a good thing to be aware of is gather information, gather details from seeing. The more information that we get, the better we can help crews or whoever's asking for advice. So definitely gather information and detail from a scene. Work with other agencies and know that you're not alone. I think that's a big thing, especially if you're rural and you think there's only two of you and your closest backup might be an hour away. Just think you're never alone. You can always contact us and see that there might be something that we know we can help you with that you're not aware of. So work with other agencies and also ask for advice. So I think that would be the three things. So gather information and details from scene, work with other agencies and ask help and advice from us or someone that you think you need. Fantastic. No, that's brilliant. And thanks for giving us such a kind of clear rundown of, yeah, it's a pretty massive topic, but we've managed to get it compressed down to a manageable bite. <laughs> <That's a joke. laughs> Thank you. Great. No problem, thanks Dave. very much. Thanks for having us. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.